Welcome to episode number 27 of Talking Mopars and another installment of High Performance Heritage. And this time we're talking about the story behind the Plymouth Barracuda. We also have Project Car of the Week, High Performance Parts, and Listener Stories. So without further ado, if you are a Mopar enthusiast, then you are in the right place. Don't go anywhere. You're tuned into the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth. And I'm your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Hello again, Mopar enthusiasts. We are back for another episode of Talking Mopars, and I'm excited about this one because every time we do a high-performance heritage episode, I always get feedback saying, oh, we love it when you do the history episodes, and the Barracuda keeps getting brought up. That's why we're talking about the Barracuda today. We also have Project Car of the Week, high-performance parts, and listener stories. We are still cooking with gas on this podcast, and I have good news. We have more episodes of Direct Connections coming. I've been making a lot of good connections with people, and I've been talking to a lot of folks about getting them on the show, so we're going to keep that going. But for now, I got a high-performance heritage episode for you, so stick around, and let's get this show on the road. This week's Project Car of the Week was a 69 Dart GTS 383 car, posted on Wednesday, May 6th at 9 a.m. Let's check out the ad. 1969 Dodge Dart GTS 383, 25,000, South County. 1969 Dodge Dart GTS. This is one of the only 488 1969 GTS 383 727 cars made. It has no rust and has never been rusty. Very well cared for and a rare big block version. This car was a show car since the 1980s, and as such, the underside is remarkably clean. It is road ready and any modifications are minimal like the addition of gauges, tack, etc. to make more driver friendly. Title status is listed as clean. Okay, so this isn't the normal restoration project that I usually share for Project Car of the Week. This car is actually a really good driver quality car. And the seller claims that the car has been a show car since the 1980s. And judging by the pictures, I believe them. The trunk floor is remarkably clean. I would like to see this car in person to see if it's ever been repainted because the paint shows very well, at least in pictures. And we all know that pictures on the internet are kind of like a, yeah. But from what I see, it is in really stellar condition, especially if it's been around the block a few times. You know, the seller claims it doesn't have any rust and it looks amazing. As far as any Mopar from 1969, chances are if you look at a original car, the trunk floor is going to be you know, pretty toast on most cars. You know, when you talk about survivors, it's tough because, you know, how do you define a survivor? I define a survivor as a car that's never been touched. And if it has, minimal modifications can be made to bring it back to 100% original. This car is just really clean. And I think for 25000 I think he's right in the ballpark there. Because like he says in the ad, any modifications that he's made can easily be reversed and the car can be reverted back to completely 100% original condition and original parts, which would, you know, increase the value. And at 25 grand, I would imagine that this car, if it was 100% original and a survivor, I think it would be fair to say that this car is hovering around $30,000. Now I know a lot of people go 30,000 for an A body. I see guys complain about A bodies for 15 or 20 grand, you know, that are nice. I've seen cars that are equivalent to this one, maybe a little bit better north of $30,000. I think this car would be a great car for somebody who doesn't want 
a complete project car that has a little bit of cash that can make something happen in the twenty twenty five thousand dollar range and wants something fun to drive that will actually accumulate in value. This is an investment car. You know how much you will gain in that investment? I don't know. If I were to buy this car now, don't take this the wrong way, seller. If you manage to listen to this, I would return it all the way back to stock. I would take all the modifications that have been done to it. I'd tuck them away, but I would definitely return this car to as stock as possible because that's what good a shape this car is in. And I think it deserves to be returned back to its original condition. Now, that being said, the modifications that have been done to this car were tasteful. It doesn't have 20 inch, you know, ghetto wheels on it. It doesn't have a big giant wing on the back of it. It doesn't have anything that I would deem incorrect. Like if this car had the fiberglass six pack hood that my car has, I'd be like, all right, that's got to go. You know, we got to get the power bulge hood on this thing and, you know, go that direction. It's a great car for a great price. And I think it has a ton of potential, especially for somebody who, like I said, doesn't want a complete project, wants something that they can enjoy. And if they choose to do so, bring back to factory original. So $25,000 will get you a 1969 Dodge Dart GTS 383 car. Now, it does not say whether or not this car is numbers matching, but let's go ahead and assume that the car is numbers matching. And if that is the case, then $25,000, in my opinion, is a good deal. If you can get this car for $20,000, then you're getting a really good deal. I wouldn't have been surprised if this car was posted for $29,000, to be honest with you. And I wouldn't have seen that price and went, oh, that's crazy, because I don't think like that. I like to think in the future. You know, if I buy this car for $29,000 now, is it going to be worth $29,000 in five years? If the answer is yes, cool, then I haven't lost or gained. If it's worth $33,000, then I've gained. If it's worth $25,000 in five or ten years, then I've lost if I bought it for $29,000. Do you see how my mind works? So this car, I think, is great. And anybody that's looking for less of a project, more of a driver, something that they can show and have a good time with on a Sunday, this car has drive me written all over it. Enjoy me. It's a big block A body that has great investment potential. And for that reason, I chose it for Project Car of the Week. So that was Project Car of the Week. And remember, no Mopar left behind. It's time once again for listener stories. And this week we have two stories. One sent in by email and the other was a voicemail that was sent to me that I thought was pretty funny. Let's start this off with the email that I got from Joel Laughlin. Here is Joel's story. Hello, Chris. I really enjoyed the latest podcast. Kudos to the two young men that went Mopar despite their father's objections. I believe that real Mopar people are more passionate about their brand than Ford or GM people. That's why we object to a Chevy engine and a Mopar. On the other hand, we are a tighter community willing to help a fellow Mopar person out. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. My mother's family was all GM. My dad's family was mostly Mopar, but my dad was the only Mopar no-car person. His uncle had a 56 Chrysler New Yorker St. Regis with a 354 Hemi. In May 1968, my dad traded his 58 Plymouth Belvedere for a new Charger. The next year, my uncle bought a B5 Roadrunner. Around that same time, my dad needed to go to the Dodge dealer for something. My younger brother and I went with him. We walked into the showroom floor and were mesmerized by the coolest car we had ever seen. It looked like my dad's Charger, but it had a swoopy nose and a big spoiler on the back. It was red with a big black stripe on the back with the word Daytona stenciled in the stripe. Weekends were usually spent at my uncle's house watching Dolphins football or Richard Petty duking it out on a NASCAR track. When I started junior high, my dad would drop me off at school on his way to work. 
I had an hour before school started, so I hung out in the library. They had Hot Rod and Carcraft magazines. I would read them from cover to cover and read them again, as well as any book that had to do with cars, motorcycles, or planes. In 1977, I was 15 years old. I got a full-time summer job at the place where my dad worked. My uncle had paint and body shops with several different partners over the years. One of his former partners had a used car lot. On that lot, he had a 69 Charger. FA, HP 383 Auto, 323 sure grip Rear, Green Interior, Console, Buckets, and AC. The engine ran bad and the transmission slipped. He wanted $400. Every Friday, I'd cash my check and give him $100 and have just enough left over for lunches. We went to tow at home and my dad gave me a short lesson on flat towing with a chain. Talk about a nervous 15-year-old kid who still had a learner's permit. We made it home okay. My dad did most of the work on the car. I watched and learned and handed him tools. He pulled the heads and we had them redone. Then I found a 383 with a three-speed stick setup from a 69 Super B. Out went the auto. My dad welded in the frame bracket for the torque shaft and made a floor shifter hump from sheet aluminum. One day I was at my best friend's house and I noticed his neighbor had a transmission laying in the bed of an early 50s Ford pickup. Turns out it was an A833. $50 and it was mine. It soon replaced the three-speed. All of my family tried to talk me out of buying a gas guzzler, but I didn't care. I loved that car and it was my daily transportation until 1982. I read where a lot of people say they were just cars then or we were tripping over those things in junkyards. To me, that car was very special and my dream was to make it the fastest and nicest car in town on a teenager's earnings. Mopar people were few and far between. I took a lot of crap from Ford and Chevy guys. 99% of them didn't know a crankshaft from a camshaft. I was Mopar when Mopar wasn't cool. If you're interested, I'll tell you why I had to give it up and about the car that got me back into classic Mopars. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention in the last story that I sold the 70 Cuda to get the money to buy back the Charger. A lot of people thought I was crazy, but I really love the Charger and think it is a very unique car. Hey Joel, thanks for sending in your story. Before we get started here, at the very end of the story, you said that you forgot to mention in your last story that you sold the 70 Cuda to get the money back to buy the Charger. Did I miss something? Because I reread that story a few times and there was nothing in there about a 70 Cuda. So, Joel, send in the story about how you got a 70 Cuda, and then you sold it to get the money that you needed to buy back your Charger. I'm really intrigued by that story, and yes, I want to hear the story about how you gave up the Charger and what got you back into classic Mopar. So send that one in, and we'll get that one shared on the podcast too. As for the rest of your story, it sounds like you've been a Mopar guy from the beginning, and not too many people can actually say that they saw a Dodge Charger Daytona on the dealer showroom floor. That is awesome. I think that's really cool. And hey, about the Hot Rod and Carcraft magazines, my libraries must have sucked, and I just didn't realize it because none of them had car magazines. So that really made me feel left out, and now I'm disappointed in all my schools. <laughs> none of them had any car magazines. I always brought my own, and I was always the weird kid in school who was obsessed with cars and read car magazines, and not too many other kids were like that. I wish there was more car people. That would have been a lot funner. But it was interesting to hear your story about getting the Charger for $400. Gosh, you know, I keep hearing these stories again and again about guys getting these awesome Mopars for so cheap. And it just makes me wish that I had really grown up in that era instead of the one that I did. And I understand what you're saying about reading where a lot of people say, oh, they were just cars then. And to me, I completely agree with there was something special about those cars and I find it really hard to believe that there were people that didn't see how special those cars were in that time. But I didn't grow up then. I grew up much, much later 
And now I just get to enjoy hearing the stories. So thank you, Joel, for sending in your story. And please don't forget to send in the story about how you had to give up the charger, but then you got back into classic Mopars and you sold a 70 Cuda to get money to buy back your charger. I want to hear that story. So be sure to reach back out. I feel like we got left on a cliffhanger, but that's all right. Send us the rest. Thanks, Joel, for sending in your story. Our next story was a voicemail that I got that caught me really off guard in the beginning. But if you listen to last week's episode, I talked about the cartoon King of the Hill and how the character Boomhauer had what I thought was a mix between a 69 and a 68 Super B. And I got a response from a gentleman named Hank. Now, here is Hank's voicemail. Hi, Chris. My name is Hank. I was listening to your podcast the other day. And, well, yeah, I listen every week. I love your podcast. It's the best one around. Anyway, you were talking about my buddy Boomhauser's car, so I thought I'd call in and let you know. The only thing that could be better about that car is if it ran on propane. So, if you look closely, it's got the 1968 round marker lights. Yep, that's what it is, the 68. Anyway, thought I'd let you know, keep doing a good job. I gotta go light my propane barbecue. There's Bobby, get off of that grill. There was Hank's message, and Hank, thank you very much for calling in and clarifying your friend Boomhauer's car was indeed a 68. If you know anyone that sells cheap propane and has great deals on propane accessories, please email me because I need a new barbecue. I don't know what I did to mine, but now it won't ignite. I trust that you could point me in the right direction. Thank you, Hank, once again for clarifying that your friend Boomhauer's Super B was indeed a 1968. That was Listener Stories. If you have a story that you'd like to submit, you can email me or leave me a voice message. My email address is chris at talkingmopars.com, and the voicemail number is 209-28-MOPAR. That was Listener Stories, and I look forward to sharing your listener story right here on Talking Mopars. This week's high performance part was the 1970 Dodge Challenger RT featured in the movie Vanishing Point. Vanishing Point was made in 1971, and if you don't know the film and you are a Mopar guy, I suggest that you go out and get Vanishing Point because it features a really cool car. The 1970 Dodge Challenger RT featured in it was Alpine White with a 440 and a 4-speed. Five Dodge Challenger RTs were used in the movie. Four of the cars had 440s with 4-speeds, and the fifth car was a 383 with a 727. These cars were actually rented by 20th Century Fox from Chrysler for $1 a day. Back in 1971, these cars were still new, so it was really cool to see them on the silver screen. And Vanishing Point has become a cult film. There was also a remake many years later, which you can watch as well, too. Of course, there was a famous line from that remake that everyone should recognize. And that line was, it takes a Mopar to catch a Mopar. So if you haven't seen the movies, go check out both Vanishing Points. They're fun movies. You know, they're road flicks. It's about car chases and all sorts of fun stuff like that. So go check them out. That was High Performance Parts, the 1970 Dodge Challenger RT and Alpine White in both of the Vanishing Point movies. The Barracuda and later the Cuda was a car manufactured by Plymouth starting in 1964 and ending in 1974. A lot of people actually believe that the Ford Mustang was the first pony car offered by the Big Three of Detroit. That's not entirely accurate. Maybe it's considered the first pony car because it was the first to be named after a horse. 
Who knows? But what I can tell you is that the Plymouth Barracuda was actually released first. So, anytime you hear someone claim that the Mustang was the first pony car offered by Detroit's Big Three, you can say with confidence that that is not true. The fact is that the Plymouth Barracuda was officially launched for sale on April 1st, 1964. That means that it beat the Ford Mustang to the sales floor by 16 days. Unfortunately, the Barracuda could not match the number of sales that the Mustang boasted, but this installment of high-performance heritage is not about the Mustang. No way, no how. This high-performance heritage is spotlighting the Plymouth Barracuda that would have humble beginnings but would end up with the bragging rights of being one of the most sought-after muscle cars of all time. The Plymouth Valiant was a good car. It was everything a conservative consumer would be interested in. It was practical, it wasn't crazy on gas, and it was an affordable car for those who needed a good car for transportation purposes. The one thing the Valiant lacked, in all honesty, was a desirable compact sports coupe. See, the Valiant had been in Plymouth's lineup since its first model year in 1960. Plymouth had even planned for a fastback coupe version of the Valiant around 1962, but that version never made it to production. In fact, maybe if Ford didn't even create the Mustang in the first place, Plymouth may not have ever even felt the need to create their own compact sport coupe. So I guess we can thank the Blue Oval Boys for that. The only issue that I take up with Plymouth in the first generation of the Barracuda was the fact that it didn't stray away enough from the Valiant to stand on its own. It lacked a competitive edge when going head-to-head -head with the Mustang, and the sales numbers proved as much. Even though it did have an optional V8 in the form of Chrysler's 273, that engine wasn't necessarily considered a high-performance engine until 1965 when the Commando 273 was released. The Commando 273 got a little bit more power with help from an increase in compression, better flowing exhaust, and a different cam. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough to truly compete with Ford's 289 V8. 1966 would be the last year of the first-generation Barracuda, which would actually be a good thing for Chrysler. They needed something fresh a new Barracuda that would wipe the slate clean and give the Mustang a true run for its money. Enter the newly redesigned Barracuda for 1967, which, although still sharing much of its DNA with the Valiant, was able to stand on its own two feet thanks to its new design and inclusion of a notchback and convertible version. This time around, Plymouth knew what it had to do to up the ante and compete with the other Detroit pony cars. They had to stuff a big block in between the fenders, and that's exactly what they did. At the top of the list of Barracudas stood the Formula S 383, and under it were the tried-and-true Slant 6 and the familiar 273. For 1968, the 273 was retired in favor of the 318, and a sportier small block was also available, the highly regarded 340. The 383 was woken up a bit too with some upgrades from the Cuda's big brother, the Roadrunner. It borrowed the camshaft, intake manifold, and heads, which increased power from 280 bhp to 300 bhp. It is worth noting here that in 1968, Chrysler offered a Hemi-powered Barracuda for superstock drag racing. You can learn more about that car in episode 19 of Talking Mopars, where we did a high-performance heritage episode on the Hearst Superstock Hemi Darts and Barracudas of 1968. It's also worth noting that in this second generation of Barracudas, there were subtle design changes in each year. The following year, in 1969, Plymouth raised the stakes once again by raising the power output of the 383 by 30 bhp. And while significant, that change alone wouldn't change the history of muscle cars the way that the Barracuda's new trim package would that trim package would become one of the most legendary and iconic muscle cars of all time, CUDA. For the CUDA's first year, it was available with a 340, 383, and if you were lucky enough to have an M-coded CUDA, you got a 440 Super Commando. Sadly, this would be the last year we would see the Barracuda or CUDA with its fastback design and as an A-body. But things may have actually changed for the better with the introduction of the E-body platform. The E-bodies were the newly redesigned Barracuda and the new for 1970 Dodge Challenger. The Barracuda had shed its DNA with the Valiant and was reborn as a whole new car, one that would eventually take the muscle car world by storm. The Barracuda had many engine options, but since the car had an engine compartment that was significantly larger than its A-body predecessor, 
the doors to a whole new world of performance were opened. Now you could get a Barracuda with a Slant 6, but you could also get a Cuda with a 446 barrel, or even with the Elephant, the legendary 426 Hemi. The Barracuda was a versatile platform. You could have a tame yet stylish sport coupe, or you could have a street-legal beast ready to devour the competition. Automatics, 3-speeds, 4-speeds, 6-cylinders, or giant V8s with menacing shaker hood scoops. You could also get one in a variety of colors, including the newly released high-impact colors offered by Chrysler that became legendary in their own right. The options for what you could have in the Barracuda platform were nearly endless, and could satisfy your every automotive need or desire. 1971 was the year that the Cuda cemented itself as one of the most iconic muscle cars of all time. Some would argue that the 71 Cuda is the most iconic muscle car of all time. But with a redesigned grille, new four headlight configuration, newly designed taillights, newly incorporated fender gills, and other subtle changes, the Cuda made a statement that would withstand the test of time. In fact, the ultra-rare limited production 1971 Hemi Cuda convertible is widely considered the most valuable muscle car ever, easily commanding prices in seven-figure territory. Sadly, as the muscle car era came to a close, so did the styling that made the Cuda a legend. The last Barracudas left the assembly line as 1974 models, and with them they took the entire muscle car era. To this day, many Mopar enthusiasts, including myself, are clamoring for a new Cuda. One that isn't Challenger-based, but a brand new model that can stand on its own. I know that I missed the first muscle car era where you could walk into a dealership and buy a brand new Cuda, but I sincerely hope that the great folks at FCA will someday give Mopar enthusiasts the opportunity to relive history and buy a brand new Cuda off the showroom floor in this modern era of Mopar performance. Only time will tell if the legend will ever return. Thank you for joining me on this installment of High Performance Heritage. I have intentionally left out quite a few details about the history of the Barracuda. Things like the styling differences in each generation, the 1969 introduction of the mod top, and things like that. And speaking of the mod top, we're actually going to do a whole episode on that, so we'll get to that. But these spotlights on high-performance heritage are simply meant to give you a generalized knowledge of the subject. As with any installment of high-performance heritage, I highly encourage you to go out and learn more about the history of Mopars on your own. I've actually found that every story within the world of Mopar has many layers, and uncovering them can be a fun adventure in and of itself. So go out there and learn. I know a lot of you guys and gals out there are amazing Mopar historians, far more knowledgeable than myself, and knowledge is power. So be sure to share that knowledge with your fellow Mopar enthusiasts. That was High Performance Heritage. Ah, the much-anticipated Barracuda episode. There you have it, folks. High Performance Heritage is in the books once again. And this time we covered the Barracuda. I know a few of you have asked me to do it just because, you know, the Barracuda is a staple of Mopar. If you don't know what a Barracuda or a Cuda is, then you're really not a Mopar guy. I'm sorry to break the news to you. But if you don't know anything about the Barracuda or the Cuda, you're not a Mopar guy. But hopefully now, having listened to this episode, you know a little bit more about the Barracuda and the origins of the Cuda. And as far as Barracudas go, in my opinion, I think they are one of the most iconic muscle cars of all time. I really want to add one to my collection someday. Now, I don't know if I want the A-body version or the E-body version. I really like the 67 to 69 Barracudas. I would not mind having a fastback or a notchback. But then you look at an E-body Cuda, and there is something about the shape of the E-bodies, the Challenger and the Cuda, or Barracuda, that... I don't know what it is, but it is just, it's almost perfection. Okay, and I'm also a B-body guy. I love those. I'm just a Mopar guy, let's be honest here. But 
if I'm going to sit on my soapbox and talk about the beauty of an e-body, I have to because, gosh, they're beautiful cars. They're beautiful machines. There is never a moment where I see an e-body and I go, gosh, they really nailed it with the lines on that thing. And that's the case with many Mopars that I look at. I don't know if that's just because I'm a major Mopar enthusiast and I just love the styling of those cars or what, but every time I look at a you know, 68 through 1972 Mopar, all I can think of is, God, they nailed it. They did a great job. You know, I'm a big fan of the fuselage body styles. I'm a fan of the Coke bottle body styles. I just think that Chrysler just really, that period of time for Chrysler was amazing. An amazing period of time for styling and obviously for the muscle cars. Gosh, what a time to be alive. All you people out there that are listening that were alive during that time, you are so fortunate. I can't tell you how envious I am that I didn't get to experience that time period. I hear stories and all I can think of is, gosh, and I say this all the time, I wish that I was born in that era. I wish I could have experienced that era because it is so cool. And that's why I'm such a, you know, I love reading old car magazines. I've said this before too. I love reading old car magazines because it's like a window into the past. And when I'm looking through these old hot rods and super stock magazines and all that, I just, I can't help but think, gosh, it was way cooler back then. You know, speed shops and all that stuff. I love going online and just looking up old dealership pictures because you get to see these cars brand new on the lot. I just find it super fascinating. And I'm just a student of the nostalgia. I love it. I love the vintage Superstock racing. I love the old articles. One thing I love to do is I love to read old articles when they're talking about, you know, I call it speed theory. When they're talking about modifying cars for back in the day. Because there's been so many advancements in our technology that it's interesting to see their little tips and tricks for, you know, carburation and just ways to go faster from back in the day. It's really cool. And it's really a cool study when you get into that because you start understanding, you know, oh, this is the history and, you know, that's where we came from. You know, when you talk about being a gearhead. So for those of you out there listening that maybe are just getting into Mopars, Maybe you haven't been a fan of or an enthusiast of old classic cars or old muscle cars for very long. I encourage you to go look into the old car magazines and just thumb through them. Read the articles, look at the pictures, and if you don't get a little excited looking at some of those old like drag racing NHRA pictures and seeing like Dandy Dick Landy, you know, Socks and Martin, and all the legends of drag racing. Don Garlitz, all of them. If you don't look at those pictures and just go, gosh, I wish I got to experience that, then I don't think you're a real enthusiast, okay? Because when I look at those magazines, you know, it kind of pisses me off. (laughs) I'm like, everybody else got to have all that fun. And now tracks around the country are closing, not having as many events. And it just doesn't seem like there's enough enthusiasm for that aspect of car culture anymore. And that's sad to me. You know, when you look at the old drag racing and I like to watch videos, I like to go on YouTube and just look up vintage super stock racing. And you can actually find some old vintage video footage of those races. But one thing I noticed is what I think we're lacking in today's drag racing. 
and that's personality and characters. Now you get a little bit of that with street outlaws, but you know, it's just not the same. But what's done is done, and that's all in the past. I guess, you know, when I think about it, I look at like pro drag racing, and it just does nothing for me. You know, it's cool, don't get me wrong. You know, I'm a fan, but I'm not an Uber fan. I would much rather go watch, you know, factory stock appearing muscle car races <laughs> than watching, you know, 200 mile an hour, you know, nitro burning cars. None of that, you know, none of that revs my engine, if you will. <laughs> I like I like old school stuff, man. I'd rather watch slow street cars. You know, I'd rather watch 10, 11, 12 second cars race than, you know, six second, five second cars, <laughs> you know, in the eighth. It just does nothing for me. I'm sorry, and I know that there's a lot of people out there that have differing opinions, and that's okay. We can all have different opinions. But for me, I'd rather, okay, you want to know what I want to see over and above all? I want to see a bunch of ratty Mopars at the track racing. That, to me, is fun. That's why I'm a fan of roadkill and, like, the zip-tie drags. You know, it's real down-to-earth blue-collar guys just having fun. That, to me, is a good time, and... You know, I know that there's some drag racing going on out there that is like, you know, ratty muscle cars and stuff. That, to me, is the coolest right now. That, to me, is awesome. Ratty muscle cars and trucks just duking it out at the track, having a good time. That, to me, is more entertaining than NHRA Nationals. I'm sorry, but it is. And that's not that's not throwing shade at the NHRA, okay? You do you, <laughs> all right? You do you, NHRA. I'm cool with you. No problems here, but for me, you know, I'd rather see a car that, you know, some kids threw together in their backyard, you know, and try to run a 14-second quarter mile, you know, with used speed parts from Craigslist than seeing a bunch of corporate race cars, you know, trying to run threes in the quarter mile or whatever, you know, 200 miles an hour. That just doesn't interest me. But enough of my soapbox. What was I talking about? I think I was talking about Barracudas. <laughs> That's right. We were talking about how awesome e-body Barracudas are. So, yeah, if if somebody said, you know what, Chris, you can have any CUDA you want. Money is no object. You get one for free. Gosh, you know, there's something about a 70 Hemi CUDA that just still gets me. You know, the 71s are awesome. 68, 69, even 67s are really cool. But when they came out with the E-Body in 1970, that car just changed the game. And I would love to have a 70 Hemi CUDA. Preferably with a pistol grip and an N96 shaker hood. So that's my dream CUDA. And who knows, maybe I'll have a CUDA someday. Um, it'll probably be a 67 to 69 because I cannot afford a 70 or 71. But that's okay. I'll take any Barracuda I can get. You know, beggars can't be choosy. Anyways, thank you for listening to this episode of High Performance Heritage. For more information about this show, please visit TalkingMopars.com. That's also where I would like for you to tell your Mopar-addicted friends to go. Just send them over to the website. And don't forget, if you have a story that you would like to share with the show, feel free to email it to me, chris at talkingmopars.com. Or if you want to hear yourself in the show, send me a voice message. You can do that by calling 209-28-MOPAR. Until we talk again, my name is Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.